You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, a Virginia Tech sports podcast presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. Welcome back to Inside the Tunnel, back again with another podcast. Tonight, it is Doug and I to give you the entire rundown of everything that happened over the last week, the Jerry Kill hire that happened this week, the Furman game, and previewing the schedule. So let's start it off with Doug. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. How's it going over on your end? You know, it's good. It's it's the bye week. It it feels a little less stressful. Obviously, constant threads asking about the future of the program. But other than that, you know, it's been a pretty pretty fine week. Other than like a good uh, review of the program at large whenever you get a chance. Yeah, and especially with two bye weeks this year, I'm sure this won't be the last time we see all those threads pop up or fans losing their minds. Um, but before we go into the Furman game, there was a big story that dropped during the bye week, which is a bit surprising. Uh, this one personally caught me off guard. But Jerry Kill, a former FBS and FCS head coach, has been named a special assistant to the head coach. What are your general takeaways on his addition to the staff? Yeah, I think it's a good hire. Um, you know, Quinte talked about it, just being able to get a fresh set of eyes that can um, maybe pick a couple of things that they're doing that they could be doing better. Um, he's obviously very experienced and was successful uh, being a head coach at multiple places, including in the Big Ten. Um, you know, Tech is, if you look at their last 12 regular season games, um, not counting that Marshall game that they added at the end of last year, they're five and seven. So obviously, you know, getting fresh eyes on the program and especially on a bye week, I think helped. Um, I thought, I think they would have loved to have done it earlier in the season. Um, I think there's a, you know, they just, they didn't have enough money. They just, you know, Jerry Phil was athletic director at Southern Illinois. Obviously the timing didn't quite work out, but, you know, I think, it's good to see Fuente taking the initiative here during the bye week to, to realize that, you know, they need a, a fresh set of eyes. Um, I know he came in during fall camp and watched a little bit, and um, that's helpful, but I feel like watching during, you know, a game week, the preparation during a game week and during a game, and then, you know, how they react after a game, I think that's, you know, that's a completely different set of um, advice that, you know, Jerry Kill can offer as opposed to coming in, you know, the second week of August and, you know, watching some drills and, you know, some early fall camps. So I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact he can have now that, you know, he's involved in the game to game preparation. Yeah, I like that he not only was he a head coach and has ample experience, but he also worked in the athletics department. Like you said, he was the athletic director for Southern Illinois. He was also a coach there a long time ago, one coach of the year for that FCS program. was at Northern Illinois. He was at Minnesota where he won Big Ten Coach of the Year. Um, And he was also the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach for Rutgers. I think that the addition of him is, is desperately needed. He is going to be able to dissect things and and be honest about it. And and not a lot of 
head coaches like to do that, you know, kind of put your pride on the line, bring in another guy that that kind of has experience as a head coach and wants to do certain things his way. But, you know, he said that uh, he's had guys in the past when he was at Memphis, uh, Darrell Dickey did it as well, that it, it's a guy with former head coaching experience that will see everything, kind of give his takes, honest takes on on everything from culture to recruiting to game planning. Um, Brad Cornelson even said that he was going to assist him with, with the run game woes. That'll be interesting to see if, if there's sudden improvement, especially after the bye week. Uh, it is interesting timing, like you noted. Uh, he did come by in the preseason and was able to kind of give advice. I think that's a, a fairly common thing to bring in uh, different minds from all over and and I know it's done primarily during the off season, but but also in the preseason, just to to give their their thoughts on everything. But I, I think there was a process, maybe with the the BOV, the Board of Visitors, and uh, the Athletics Department carving out this new role. I think it's interesting that you, with all the struggles this year, or apparent struggles this year, I should say, that that this almost seemed at first glance like it was Whit Babcock's decision to bring in someone else to kind of right the ship. But uh, when Fuente was talking about it, it actually appeared to be his idea and that he went to the athletic department to kind of talk about creating this new role and really pushed for it. So I think, you know, that's very interesting to note as well. Um, and, And I've been seeing a lot of chatter with Bud Foster's impending retirement, with the offense not performing up to standards, that possibly Jerry Kill would be kind of a coordinator in waiting. I don't think that's the case whatsoever, uh, from what I've been told, at least. It just seems like it's, it is what it is. He's, he's a guy that's going to try to help at the top, and, and that's all it is. Of course, it would be a good interview should he find success um, in his role, and and I'm, you know, fairly certain he would be considered for that role. At the same time, I think with what Virginia Tech is trying to accomplish, one, I don't see Brad Cornelson going anywhere this anytime this season, um, and two, I think that there's higher profile candidates that could slot in as the defensive coordinator towards the end of the season. So. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this move. Uh, he was the best man at Gary Patterson's wedding. Uh, Gary Patterson's the head coach at TCU, where Justin Fuente coached. Um, they both played under the same guy, uh, Dennis Fraccione, a nice Italian coach. But um, yeah, so there's a lot of mutual connections there. Um, he, and again, I just think this is this is a positive development. Over the bye week, I think it kind of alleviates some of that pressure from Fuente to kind of micromanage everything. I think now he can kind of turn his attention more towards where it needs to be, whether that's with the quarterbacks, whether that's running, you know, the offensive game plan in particular, and and kind of let uh, Jerry Kill do some other things uh, at the top. So, all in all, you know, very positive move. I, I just want to, I just want to jump in. Um, it's interesting. 
Like, you couldn't make this decision unless he was there in August. Like, bringing in a, a brand new coach in week three or four of the season that your players have never even seen before, like, that would reek of desperation. And I think that would make a lot of people in the locker room be like, what in the world is going on here? You know, I think since he came in in the, you know, in August, and the players know him, they've obviously talked to him, they're familiar with him at some level. You know, I think, I think this is really the only move that Fuente could have made here to to really kind of right the ship without making it seem like he was like grasping at straws here. Like people know him, he's going to come in and offer some advice, and the players can buy into that. If you're bringing in some, you know, random guy that was an analyst across the country or was a guy on ESPN or something like that, you know, I think the players probably call BS on that. And so I think this ends up being a good hire all around. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. I think it, it's been in the works for a while. Um, didn't necessarily expect it to happen. Usually in the off season, uh, luckily we're, we're made aware of, of potential hires um, this one kind of caught me blindsided, to be honest. Um, you know, I didn't know he was around and, and whatnot, but I also think like you, you said in the beginning that, you know, there's also other stuff that he has to deal with being the athletic director for Southern Illinois. I'm sure he doesn't have a lot of time to, to, uh, you know, negotiate and whatnot, and also has to leave them in a good place for them to find a candidate as well. So I'm sure this wasn't just something that, oh, yeah, this guy would be a great addition. Let's do it right now. I'm sure, you know, since he arrived in Blacksburg, just to view, maybe that's when the discussion started. Um, and one more thing I'll add just to close out uh, the whole Jerry Kill addition. Um, and, and it's actually Evan's point uh, that he made on our message board today is that he actually did a very good job of creating funding for Southern Illinois. And... I think that's really important that people will look at him as kind of this football guy, and I'm sure that'll be his primary function, but um, his AD experience as well and the program in general, uh, creating more excitement for it, uh, whether that's recruiting, whether that's you know getting big-time donors to pitch in. I think it's really important. So all in all, I think it's, a, it's an impressive hire. I think uh, it will pay dividends immediately. We'll see how much it is in the football role versus football operations, I should say. Um, but yeah, all in all, very exciting uh, times at Virginia Tech. Uh, I do want to turn our attention to the Furman game. Now, this one was a little... I mean, we, we talked about it in, in our preview that it wouldn't be nearly as one-sided as as we expected the Old Dominion game to be. Um, that, that Furman's a quality team. Yes, they're in the FCS, but it was a team that had an offense that could give Virginia Tech a run for their money. Uh, I did not expect uh, the first half from Virginia Tech, but what were your overall thoughts on the game in general? It was ugly, wasn't it? Um I, you know, I think we both, most everybody thought heading in it was going to be, it was going to be a different kind of ugly in that, you know, the defenses wouldn't be, uh, you know, 
stop, stopping much of anything. I, you know, I thought it was going to be like an old school, like Big 12 versus Tulsa game where, you know, Tulsa gets blown out, but they score 20 or 30 points because they got a good offense. Um, and it just turned into a <laughs> an ugly mess of a game. Um, you know, Ryan Willis <laughs> didn't have enough time because of the offensive line. He completed 17 passes for 123 yards against an FCS team that gave up 48 points the week before. Um, you know, offensively, that was <laughs> just brutal. Um, and I think it all starts up front with the offensive line. You can talk about everybody else, but until that offensive line, which is so young, um, and it might be inconsistent all year, um, offensively, Tech's got a lot to figure out in terms of how they can consistently move the ball with an offensive line that might start three freshmen and two sophomores. I thought the defense was, was great. I mean, most everybody projected 20, 20 plus points, 25 points for Furman. And he scored 17 and two of them were off, you know, short fields on turnovers. So I feel like the defense as a whole over the three games, if we look at it, if you take away the two turnovers against Boston College, they gave them the short field and they scored again. If you take away the two turnovers against Furman, they gave them the short field and they scored again. They've really only been driven down the field, you know, down the entire field four times, twice against ODU and twice against DC on big plays. Um, you know, they're not a playmaking defense. And I think um, aside from Farley's interception and then the big strip that kind of changed the game there early in the second half, um, it makes it seem like the defense is a bend, but don't break defense. But I thought, you know, they performed about as well as you can. But then you have to consider, like, everything has to be seen through a lens that this was still at the end of the day Furman. So, like, all these great performances. Tamari Connor was great. Deshaun Crawford was great on defense. But then, at the end of the day, Furman. And the real season is about to start in a week. Yeah, and that they should be great against Furman. Yeah, let me read right. you this this first half drive chart because I I when I was looking at this, I mean, I kind of laughed at it. First first drive punt, second drive field goal, third drive fumble, fourth drive punt, fifth drive interception, sixth drive missed field goal. That won't cut it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it was just. I mean, to me, and again, covering it in the moment, it, it looked really bad. I watched it again. It was that bad. The first half was was really, really, really poor. And I think that much of it had to do with the offense. Like you were saying, the defense played well. They had two short fields that they had to defend. And we all know that Furman's a good offense. They were going to get points, but nobody really expected it to be 14 points off turnovers. And that seems to be the kryptonite of this team this year is they're committing so many turnovers and, and teams are taking advantage of that. And it kind of sucks you out of the game. It sucks you out of your momentum and whatever confidence you have. And looking at the offense, it, I think the entire problem was the offensive line and and Ryan Willis trust in them. And a major takeaway that I had was if Brock Hoffman was playing, would this all happen? And my thoughts on that are Brock Hoffman's obviously been a, a starter for years. He's been a very good performer. He once he stepped on 
stepped foot on campus, he showed that he could take over the job right away at a power five level. He showed leadership. He showed grit. He showed everything that the coaches wanted to see out of him. It was unfortunate that the whole NCAA saga happened and denied his waiver. Uh, But it, it just seems like there's a lack of leadership right now on the offensive line. And when I was rewatching the game, I noticed that a lot of the assignments were jumbled and, and that forced unnecessary pressure onto Ryan Willis. He got hit a lot against Furman. And then, then you look at individual players, you know, Silas Dezanzi didn't really have a strong game. He had multiple false starts. He had multiple sacks allowed. And it just seemed like Ryan Willis didn't trust his offensive line and, I know we'll get into it in player ratings, but I mean, his one interception, he stepped up into the pocket because he didn't trust that his guys would be able to fend off the pass rush and just completely overthrew Ezekiah Grimsley for an interception. So it just seems like this this bye week is much needed to kind of take a step back, kind of slow things down. I think it's kind of unfair to Brian Hudson and and um, Doug Nestor because I think they're very talented, but right now there's there just seems to be a lack of shot calling on the offensive line, and that was my primary takeaway. Um, yeah, I think as far as the offensive line goes, you look at it, and the left side, Darisol and Smith are fine. They're playing, they're playing well. I mean, I you know I don't see anything you know out of place there. You start going to the center to the right side, and you're going with Brian Hudson, who, if you count Hoffman, who's ineligible, Coit is down with an injury, John Harris was next up, and he quickly got replaced. You're on your fourth string center, and then if you go to the right guard, you start TJ Jackson after a long battle through spring practice and fall practice, and now you're on his backup. And then if you go to the right tackle position, you, you start Danzy there. And now in two consecutive games, you've gone to his backup. So you're playing, you're playing two top backups who are freshmen. One's a redshirt freshman, one's a true freshman. And then you're playing your fourth string center. But anytime you're playing a fourth string, fourth string center, you got issues. And um, whether this bye week is where they can just kind of take a deep breath and figure it out. You know, I think Hoyt coming back would be huge just to go from your fourth center to your second center. Um, but I think he, he, when you're starting that much youth, you're going to have inconsistent play. And that's really what we're seeing here is you see some drives, like that first drive against ODU where Tech can move the ball right down the field. And then you see other drives that just stall out. And then you add in the turnovers that, set up short field for a defense that, you know, isn't the dominant defense that can just shut every everybody down no matter what. You know, I think that's that's largely what the issue has been um, here in the first three games. Yeah, and we'll see over the, the course of this bye week. I know it's looking ahead, but I am curious to see how Vance Vice will kind of treat his offensive line because you can tell that there's obvious talent in the young guys but then that lack of direction and veteran leadership really does hurt the offensive line. So, uh, and now, especially heading into kind of the the tough games of the schedule, I know 
Rhode Island is lurking, but but really against Duke and Notre Dame, those next two games, I'm curious to see if if they're going to stick Duke with and Miami and Miami. Uh, I'm curious to see if they'll they'll stick with this offensive line that they have now, or like you said, if they'll start to bring back Hoyt and put him in. Because honestly, I thought that Brian Hudson played well. I just it, it seems from an overall standpoint that all five guys just aren't playing as well as they should be right now. Yeah. You're not going to get a red, a, a true freshman. You're not going to get consistent play out of them in terms of just blocking people. And especially when we heard into, when we head into ACC play, you're just not, especially at the center position, you're not going to get the calls, right? You're not going to get any of that. Um, so I think Hoyt coming back would be huge. I also think given how young they are, you're sitting there with Terrell Smith, who is an experienced leader. He's one of the vocal leaders of the team. He's a backup right now, but if you can get him flip over to right tackle where you're having issues with Silas Danzi, and you can go with, you know, Darisol and Smith are fine on the left side. If you can get Hoyt back if your backup center, a guy who started, you know, what, six, ten games. I don't know what his total starts. He's got experience at center. And then you can go with a guy like Terrell Smith at, you know, right tackle, right guard, somewhere where you can get a little more experience from a guy that, you know, that at least has a chance of knowing what, what's going on throughout all four quarters. So, you know, I think Danzi might move inside the right guard um, at this point, and Tunuda might get to look at right tackle for a long time. But really, I think what, if Virginia Tech wants to compete in the ACC this year, they just got to get older up front and more experienced. And I think Smith might be a guy to look at there. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's a very good point. And certainly there's a lot of options, but time is running out to kind of make those final adjustments. That Every week it can't be someone else starting in a new position or else there will be no continuation, no, no established trust with Ryan Willis. So we'll see what happens on that front. But uh, overview-wise – how concerned do you think you are about the remainder uh, of what Virginia Tech is trying to accomplish after the Furman game? I think you got to be real concerned. This is a team that was down 14 to 3 to Furman and almost lost to ODU the week before. I mean, if you look at the second half of that ODU game and the first half of that Furman game, that was a pretty brutal four four quarters of football there. So I think, you know, heading into Duke, Miami, the rest of the ACC schedule, um, you know, I think you've got to be really, really concerned about, you know, what your goal is. Is your goal to win the Coastal? I think anybody looking at this team right now can say you know, winning the Coastal is probably out of reach. If your goal is to extend the bowl streak, then you got to get the seven wins and, I think we'll go into this later, but you know you got to find a way to seven wins. Um, I think I had them at nine and three uh, as a projection before the season. You know, seven wins kind of. You look at the schedule; um, they got a lot of work to do. Absolutely, I do want to take a deeper dive into the Furman game and go into our player ratings. As usual, scale one to ten, one being the worst, ten being the best. So I'll let you get started with the quarterback. Now, this one is going to be interesting. I'm sure a lot of whoever's listening right now, whatever Virginia Tech fan is listening right now, please do not 
punch your center console in your car. Do not slap your laptop or or yank out your headphones. But Doug, I'll let you I'll let you take this one. I had him at a three. Um, I don't think the interception was entirely his fault. You talked about it a little bit. He was stepping up in the pocket and rushed, and you can see he felt that pressure coming from the backside. Um, so you know. Obviously, the throw, Grinsley was wide open, and he would love to make that throw. It was just a little far, but you know, it's all on him and the offensive line and how comfortable he can be. I mean, there was some place where he, where he would, you know, play fake and look, and there's a guy right in his face. And, you know, against an FCS opponent, that's, 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 that's got to be frustrating for him. It's got to be frustrating for the players and the coaching staff. Um, add him into three, it's 123 yards through the air against, against SBS competition that gave up 48, um, points a week ago to Georgia state. Uh, I don't, you know, going into the season, the whole offense was going to be based on Ryan Wilson throwing the football. And I don't think anybody expected 123 yards against Furman. Yeah, and I, I, you look at his stat line. Maybe you did. Maybe a fan didn't watch the game, and they see seventeen of twenty-one, hundred twenty-three yards, one touchdown, one interception, and they may say, "Okay, well, maybe it was the offensive game plan was more predicated on the ground." But on the contrary, it just seemed like, and, and I really tried to slow down the game when I rewatched it, and it just seemed like there were so many bad reads from Ryan Willis that he had chances to make some plays and not necessarily just chucking it down the field and, and throwing 60 yard bombs, but, but plays around the line of scrimmage, maybe different reads within the play to get more yardage. And it just seems like he, he's just struggling going through his progressions right now and, and making those correct reads or, you know, who knows what it is, but right now he's really in a slump. And I think it's unfortunate because when he took over last year after the old Dominion game, immediately he had to face Duke and and he was already thrown into the fire against the ACC uh, slate. He had to play against Notre Dame. And generally he looked good. He was never really the weak point of the team. And now it seems like when you expect him to have those breakout games those 300 plus yard passing attack with all the options that are in the wide receiver and tight end room right now he's just struggling and it's just weird and I know I talked about it a bit before but it just seems like something's not clicking between him and the offensive line I don't know if that's forcing his decision making but certainly it just doesn't look good right now um, you know, again, during this bye week, everyone just needs to take a step back, take a deep breath and kind of, you know, go through the, the basics of what this offense is. So we'll see if they're able to accomplish that. Hennon Hooker once again did play. He had, he had one snap. He was one for one on handoffs with a 20... really good at handoffs. He's so good at handoffs. I mean, that's all I've seen him do so far. So I can't knock him for that. Hennon Hooker doing what he's entrusted to do by the Virginia Tech staff. We may never see him throw. I mean, honestly, at this point, I, I really don't know. And 
I think what I'm so bummed out about is I don't think Duke is a team that you can slack off against. Really, any team on the schedule at this point, it's all about getting wins. And I don't know if if putting in multiple quarterbacks in a game is is the way that Virginia Tech gets wins, especially with the offensive line consistency right now. So it is disheartening to see him out there and just not throwing the ball. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at you look at the schedule um, before the season, knowing that Virginia Tech has a quarter, a huge quarterback competition coming back coming up after the season, and you just looked at these the ODU game and the Furman game and then the Rhode Island game in a couple of weeks. And you were like, you know, we should get a good look at Hendon Hooker and Quincy Patterson. Um, and, you know, we got, we got a brief look at Hooker, no look at Quincy Patterson. Um, I think that's probably that's one of the most disappointing things about the last two weeks is that, you know, the, the plan to blow those teams out and get a look at these backup quarterbacks, um, didn't come to fruition at all. Yeah, all I got to say is good luck in six months when you have to preview the upcoming quarterback battle for next year because I don't know what you have to work off of right now. But uh, right. All right, so I have the running backs. I actually thought that this position group was somewhat of a strength, and by that I mean Keyshawn King. I mean, he's clearly the guy. I mean, we keep saying this every week, but, but this was kind of the – the breakout party for him. Uh, I think he's clearly established himself that doesn't matter. He's a true freshman. He has the ability to make big plays. And the one negative towards that is that he may not be physically ready to carry the bulk of the carries. And I think that's especially tough because when Deshaun McLeese was in there, he wasn't really doing anything. Um, but Keyshawn King made a lot of plays out of nothing. And when the blocking aligned, he was, he was gone. I mean, he had that 54 yard run, uh, McLeese again, 10 carries, 24 yards. I think he suffered at times because of the offensive line. Um, but also I think he wasn't able to really make guys miss. And I think that's one of the biggest flaws about him that when he's at that second level, if he ever gets there, that he's kind of a one-trick pony. He's kind of trying to run by you instead of trying to shake you out of your cleats. So overall, I had them at, uh, I'll say, six and a half out of ten. I thought they could have been more successful, um, but I could easily be convinced for a seven out of ten. Yeah, I have them at a six. Um, You talked about King, first career 100-yard game. And I think there's a lot more to come from in, in that regard. Uh, he's obviously the best running back on the team, and you touched on it. The question is just if an 18-year-old kid at 180, 185 pounds can stay healthy um, throughout the throughout the season. And I'm I'm writing this article that will be posted by the time um, by the time this gets posted. But I think the schedule sets up where you have to think about limiting Deshaun King. Against against Rhode Island, he'll come into my Duke and Miami with a week in between. I think you have to limit him against Rhode Island, and then ride him against UNC, and then you get another bye week before he's got to make it through five five games in November. So I think 
you know, it's, this is a position that is really concerning, especially with Jalen Holston's injury, where you've got King as an 18-year-old, 180-pounder, and then you got Deshaun McLeese, who is who he is at this point. Um, and there's always the chance. I mean, he hasn't proven he can stay healthy throughout the course of the year, so he's essentially the same case as Sean King. Um, McLeese is at 41 carries through three games, which puts him soaring past his record for carries in a year. If you multiply that three games, we got you know four more sets of three or four sets of three throughout the year. Is he going to carry the ball 160 times this year and make it through? Um, so I think running back this game, obviously, six for King's effort. He turned the game around there in the beginning of the second half. But there's just a lot of concern when you, when you talk about, I think, I think the bye week will help them manage October, Duke and then October. But then, I mean, if this is all you, if you only got King and McLeese and maybe a little Caleb Stewart for five, five Saturdays in November where you got to play. I think that's the, that's the main concern is what that's going to look like. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Jalen Holston. I think what's desperately lacking out of this offense is kind of that bruiser type running back to kind of get four tough yards. Obviously last year with Steven peoples didn't necessarily think by, you know, week four, I guess that, that I would be saying, you know, how much they miss Steven peoples, but when you have two guys that are, you know, more likely outside the tackle runners and, and you're kind of forcing them to run inside when you have such a young offensive line and, and they aren't really creating anything. And then you think about the added physical toll that that takes, it just doesn't seem to be working out. And I think Jalen Holston's a guy that can kind of absorb that physical toll and, and spell 10 carries a game and eat up, you know, that much needed third and short or uh, make it a third and short. So, yeah, we'll see with Caleb Stewart. I did notice that he did have a carry and he didn't come up with the ball. And that's a, that's a sin in this offense. <laughs> so, yeah, he he sprinted straight back to the bench and I didn't see him after that. So um, I, saw, I saw I watched that play and I saw him kind of like hang around the huddle and glance over the sideline like he wasn't going to catch <laughs> catch the sub coming onto the field and then he saw him as soon as he saw him, he was like oh no here we go <laughs> yeah and, and it also makes you wonder and I know this was it didn't seem like such a long shot at the time but if a guy like T- Tavian Feaster I mean my god this, mm-hmm. this this offense would have been different but you know it is I mean, what it Feaster is or Feaster I mean obviously would have been great um but I almost think you, you got to look at a guy like Malik Bell. I mean, it, he's what? He's a converted tight end playing running back, um, 230 pounds. He's like 300 he, pounds. He, 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 he looks like think 300. About it, right. If you, look, if you look at King and then you look at McLeese and you say they're basically the same player, except King can make, player, make, make people miss and get into the second level. And then you were talking about getting third and one, third and three, second and four, those kind of, you throw it. Is it worth, if, if Holston's not going to be your big back, is it worth giving a look at a guy like Bell, who if he can just fall forward, might be able to pick up three yards? Um, yeah, I, th- 
I, I also think Saj Gary is a guy, obviously they're trying to redshirt him coming off that leg injury. But if you got four games to play him with, I mean, you got four games before you can redshirt. Is that an option at some point to get him to just get some kind of different look besides King and McLeese, who are both, if they both keep playing as much as they have been playing, they're both going to be hurt by the end of the year. So I think they got to, you know, I think they've got to look at other options at some point. Yeah, I think my ideal formation is seeing Ryan Willis and Quincy Patterson in the backfield. And just him handing Hooker handing it off to him. Yeah, or even Hendon Hooker. I mean, there's so many creative ways to do it. I think the problem is that a lot of these options aren't very well known. Even with Malik Bell, he was in the spring game, and at that point, he was. I mean, he was a tank. He didn't. He he was not easily taken down to the ground. And I don't know. I don't. I don't want to make a joke about the Virginia Tech defense because I think they've been playing well. But, you know, he is an option. He's a big guy. He's tough to get down, and uh, he's very compact. So maybe, you know, I think now, especially this bye week, is when you kind of experiment with that all. Um, But I think we covered the running back room pretty well, and obviously I can go on and on about different formations I'd like to see or different uh, personnel that I'd like to see them throw in. But I'll let you take over the wide receivers and tight ends. Yeah, I had wide receivers at a six, tight ends at a five. I think the wide receivers are who they are. Um, Trey Turner and Kavian Robinson are going to lead this team at wide receiver probably every game. Um, Turner's contribution on the ground in the second half, we're just, I, I don't think Virginia Tech wins the game without Trey Turner. Um, obviously, that fumble in the first half was devastating and you know really gave Furman, gave him life to to hang around in this football game. So, you know, obviously you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta come up with the ball in Justin Fuente's offense. Um, but, you know, Robinson, Turner, fine. Grimsley, fine. Caleb Smith, fine. They're a solid group. I admit, they're going to catch a lot of passes this year. They really need to get Damon Hazleton back. But, you know, I think, I think overall, a pretty solid game. Yeah, and I think you touched on it a little bit that Trey Turner's 29-yard touchdown end-around run off the Hendon hook Hooker uh, handoff. But, uh, really good handoff. It was a great handoff once again. Uh, I had him at a six as well. I think they could have had a bigger game, if, but it was sort of the product of a bad game out of Willis. Um, they did what they could. I thought the Trey Turner uh, – you know, one-on-one in the end zone, lob ball, kind of shades of of Gerard Evans just launching it to to Bucky Hodges or Isaiah Ford or Cam Phillips. Uh, I know we've seen that a lot in the red zone out of Virginia Tech over the years, and especially in this offense. But, you know, anytime you have a guy like Turner one-on-one and he wins that, I mean, that's, that's a plus for your offense. Uh, I would have liked to see Keen and Mitchell a little bit more. I think that could have been a really, really good game for Mitchell to break out. Um, but again, it just seems like when Ryan Willis is dissecting the defense before the snap that he doesn't intend on ever using his tight ends unless it's a screen or it's it's kind of the bailout option. So, um, yeah, overall, I, I said – go ahead. I, just want, I was just going to say on Mitchell, you know, I think you touched on it. He's not going to – Willis isn't going to consistently work through his reads to, 
to find Mitchell like in between the twenties, but he is a huge threat in the red zone. When he he scored a, we had a tight end on a on, on a jet sweep run in a touchdown. When you can you know put him on the field inside the ten, inside the fifteen, inside the twenty, and he could either be a guy the defense is trying to defend him against the jet sweep or the fade or pass over the middle or a screen pass. Um, he's a guy that I, I think he's a, he's a real weapon. And, you know, when you can mix him in like that, I don't, I don't know how you plan a defense around that. Yeah. Hopefully over this bye week they can kind of create, maybe not create plays, but you know, force Willis to go his way a little bit more. Um, I know a lot of people, Really hate the jet sweep, but I, I think it – and I don't want to go back too much into the running game, but I think it was necessary from the wide receivers and even tight ends and James Mitchell doing the jet sweeps because when Keyshawn King kind of got banged up a little bit, they needed to find production somewhere. And it's, it is a good threat to have on your offense guys that are capable of, of, of taking the ball and – and, and getting to the perimeter and making plays happen. I think it opens up a little bit of the offense. Well, I think with the jet, I think with the jet sweep, like if you're running it with Terrius Wheatley, who, you know, all due respect to Terrius Wheatley, he's a fourth street running back, third street running back. He's not the biggest player on the field. When you're running it with Trey Turner or James Mitchell, who are two of the biggest playmakers, you know, the goal of the offense is to get the ball into their hands as much as possible. So if, if you're going to get – if it's got to be on the jet sweep, that's fine. Absolutely. I'll take over the offensive line. Uh, this one was brutal. Ugh. <laughs> I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to say 3 out of 10. Uh, I was thinking about a 2 out of 10. I thought Silas Dezonzi had one of the worst games I've ever seen him play, if not the worst. Uh, like I said earlier, it kind of seems like they're lost at times with their assignments. And I think much of that is because there isn't that veteran leadership at center. Um, again, I, f- I feel for Nestor and Hudson. I think they're going to be really, really good players for Virginia Tech. They're really strong. They're really athletic. You know, they pass the eyeball test. But I think it takes time, and they just don't have the time right now that you can't you can't force those intangibles onto them. And I think one day they will have them. It's just right now they don't, um, quite honestly. So I thought Lasitas had a better game. Um, he was pretty animated when they gave up sacks. Um, so, I, yeah, I thought he had a much better game. I didn't think he had a great game against Old Dominion. Obviously, way too many sacks to an FCS team and a lot of pressure. And because of that, Ryan Willis was kind of forced out of his comfort zone, which I don't know if he has a comfort zone right now, but he, he just didn't look comfortable. He didn't look in rhythm. There there really was no rhythm in the first half with the offense. I think they, they established some of that through the ground game in the second half. But, yeah, I mean, this offensive line is, is going to continue to be a, a major storyline throughout the rest of the season. I had him at a three as well. I think we touched on a lot of the offensive line earlier. Um, they, you know, blocked enough to get King to over 100 yards. Although a lot of that came on that 54 yard run, um, but they just weren't good enough in pass protection. I, th- I think that was surprising. I think they've been 
the first two games, I thought they were fine in pass protection. I thought Willis was allowed time to be comfortable and throw the ball and make make decisions, good or bad, back there. But um, they, it was just nothing out there um, against Furman. And, I mean, he nailed it. Too many sacks against an FCS team. Danzy's got to be better at right tackle if he's going to continue to play there. I think Luke Tunuda's probably going to be the guy. And then, yeah, you covered it with Nestor and, and, and Hanson or Hudson. Um, you know, those guys, Nestor should be the second string right guard right now, and he should be playing spot duty, picking up snaps here and there, playing on special teams, that kind of thing. And Hudson should be redshirting. So you look at those two guys who are, who are in there and are about to go into the meat of ACC play, so you hope they're ready for it. Yeah, and we'll see, uh, especially with the four-game threshold, Nestor's already played in three. Hudson now made his first start, but has already played as well. So we'll see if they if if, Nuss, if Nestor, you know, how much more he'll play at right guard, or if they decide to put in. Uh, I think I think Nestor's a lock to just play through the rest of the year. Hudson is a guy who, if they can get Hoyt back, he's your starting center, and I think he's I think he's got to be. You think you've got to try and redshirt him, redshirt Hudson, and and go with John Harris as your backup center. Um, at that point, you're, he's filling in for Hoyt now, and I think if Hoyt can come back, then you can kind of try and bury bury Hudson and um, and move forward like that. Yeah, I like I actually like that a lot. Uh, but let's flip over to the defensive side. Now, this one was more positive. I mean, lots more positive. Yeah, lots more positive. So I'll let you handle the defensive line. All right, I had him at a seven. Um, like we're talking about a lot more positive. Sean Crawford, number thirty-six in the middle, was the guy that really showed up, and you know I thought he was great. And um, really, for what he's one of one of Jack's two defensive tackles for sure. Um, so I think that's encouraging going forward if he can continue playing like that. Emmanuel Belmar definitely played his best game of the season there at defensive end. Um, really disciplined, really solid, exactly what you're looking for um, from him. I mean, he's never going to be a guy that's going to get after the get after the passer, you know, come up with 10 to 12 sacks in a season. He's just going to be a, at his best. He's just a solid defensive end that plays his gap, plays his responsibility as well and is strong against the run, and that's what tech needs him to be. Um, I thought Eli Adams was as good as he's been in three games. Um, if they can get Taiwan Garbett back and play him and Belmar and Adams and then get something out of Beckton and Griffin, I think I think you got something to work with there if they're going to keep playing like this. Obviously, we have to continue to have the caveat, caveat that this was Furman. Um, but I think overall, defensive line played pretty well. Yeah, and I, I will say I've been ultra critical about the defensive line and, and their projections for this season. Obviously, I thought that was the best game, and I know the, the caveat will be it is against Furman, but you know Furman does have a very good offense. They have a multiple offense. It's tough to prepare for. I don't care if they're FCS or not. You know, Danny Granger, that quarterback, looked really good. Um, so I thought this was a good test for the defensive line. Um, you pretty much covered everything. I will say the only negatives were really Hewitt's offside on that third down. 
and um, Becton kind of missing his containment for the Granger touchdown run. Yeah, I thought. I thought. I mean, I saw a couple plays. Mario Kendrick got you know pushed back, but he's a freshman. That's going to happen. But I mean, at the end of the game, they rip off that long run to get down to the two yard line. If they score a touchdown, they're three point game, and anything can happen. And you know, obviously, that defense is staying there to hold them to a field goal, largely driven by you know great effort from the defensive line. Absolutely, I'll cover the linebackers. I gave them a six out of ten. Uh, I thought Hollyfield played much better. He was more active. He wasn't pushed around as much. And again, is that because it's an FCS opponent? Who knows? Um, There are times in coverage that he's a liability, but I didn't think it showed up as much against Furman. Um, And what I do like about him is that even if he's not necessarily doing his part in the defense, that he's able to reset and get after it again. Again, that, you know, when he teamed up with Chamari Connor to force the fumble, you know, that was a critical play in the game that can't be understated that brought Virginia Tech back. Um, in terms of Ashby, uh, it wasn't his best game, uh, but at the same time, he, he, he was he was solid. Um, and then, again, I'll throw in the whip. Uh, Chamari Connor, I thought he was the best overall defender of the game in my eyes. Uh, in, in one of my bold predictions over the offseason, uh, I said that he would lead all defensive backs in terms of tackles for loss. And I could not be more proud about that bold prediction because when he's around the line of scrimmage and he gets that green light to go in the backfield to help out in the run game or whether it's pressuring the quarterback, he just he, his eyes light up and and he drops his shoulder and he makes it known that he's that he's coming. So I, I thought he was really good. I thought what really impressed me with him uh, was also his ability in coverage. He didn't get beat too often. I think he only gave up two passes uh, his way and and didn't allow them to to get more than a yard after catching the ball so i thought he was really really solid and i i'm personally glad to see him as the starting whip yeah you covered it Jamari connor was fantastic that that fourth fumble that i think that got credit for that was all connor hanging it hanging in on that on that on the run going going wide he came in there and couldn't get him down at first but stayed on him and, and wrestled him to the ground and then the fumble happened and that gets the ball and makes a big play so he was obviously lights out and i think he got really excited about what he could do going forward um Dax was better you know he led the team in tackles with 10 eight of them were assisted you know i don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you would. I, I kind of want to see him getting into the backfield and really making plays from that backer spot more. Um, so we'll see if he can do that going forward. And then Ashby, just you know, he's solid. He's, he is what he is. That he got into the backfield there, down near the goal line at the end of the game to make a big stop. So I had the linebackers at a six. Um, Connor Connor is obviously he was. I think he, him and Crossford were probably the defensive stars of the game here. Absolutely. Now for the defensive backs. 
Is it? I'm gonna ask this question because you brought it up last week. Is it still Waller and Farley, or is it Farley and Waller after that last game? Well, Farley got the pick, so I'll give him that here. Um, Farley and Waller for the time being. I had him in a nine. They held Granger to eight of fifteen for sixty-three yards at a pick. Um, this is a offense coming in where you saw it was going to throw a boatload of looks at him. Was gonna <laughs> was gonna test the edges with triple option, and then beat you over the top. And I thought the the defensive backs were great. And you know Farley, I thought that coverage where they bracketed him and waited for the overthrow textbook. Great job by Farley and great job by Waller all around. Um, Diablo, Floyd, I didn't see anything wrong with these guys. Um, and obviously when you hold a quarterback to 8 of 15 for 6 to 3 yards, you're doing something right. Um, so really good game from the defensive back. And the last unit we'll touch on is the special teams. This one was tough for me because – you shouldn't see too many, like you shouldn't make any points about the special teams when you're playing against an FCS team. So I said four out of 10, it could be harsh, but hear me out. I thought Brad Byrne was on the field way too much. Um, And in fact, he had to punt five times. I know he technically punted four times, but because they had too many men in the backfield on a punt formation, I don't know how that happens. Um, Brian Johnson, he is what he is at this point. Uh, I think inside 38 yards, you should feel confident that he's going to nail it. But outside of that range, who knows? And that doink is definitely right before halftime was just, it summed up the first half so perfectly. I mean, it was just so disappointing. And and to see that, I mean, it was just, it was gut-wrenching almost. Um and then, obviously, one of the biggest uh, points of the game was the onside kick. And and I've seen that replay so many times. I think that was terrible officiating. I thought it was funny that everyone that's a Virginia Tech fan, and, and keep in mind, Virginia Tech was, was only up seven points at that point. So if Furman gets the ball at, what, the 45 or 40-yard line, I should say, um, you know, they can easily march down and score. But it was funny that all the Virginia Tech fans were like, are you kidding me? That was the worst call I've ever seen. It should be firm and ball. So, I mean, that whole blunder definitely, you know, takes off a point or two in the special team's performance. And then I think we're going to be saying this every week, but where's the punt return? I mean, there's just – there's so much to be desired in both kicking return games – uh, the kick return and the punt return. I just think at, at this point, because there's so many problems all over the place, granted not on defense, um, that the coaches seem to just want the, the ball for the offense, no matter what. Just don't make a mistake instead of make a play. Yeah, I think I think that's clear. Just they're keeping Grimsley back there, and he hasn't. You know, I don't. I don't know how many yards he's averaging for punt return, but it's not much. And, you know, when the other option, I think, is Tavion Robinson, who's a true, true freshman, uh, I think at this point they're just happy with catch the ball and let's go put the offense on the field. Um, I, thought, I think kick return struggled. I mean, the very first kick, kickoff of the game, they let bounce in between two guys and 
you know, all of a sudden you're starting at the 12 yard line or wherever they started. Um, I think they got a lot, a lot to work on in the return game. You've got Sean Brian Johnson. Um, he's solid from inside 40. I, mean, I, I would like to keep giving him chances to kick long field goals because, of, you know, I think that's a, a clear opportunity to get points. He's got the leg. He showed it again. Shared it on the kick at the end of the second half, but I mean, into the first half. But I mean, you know, it's tough to watch him doing um, long field goals. And then you flip over to uh, Penn State and you see Jordan South drill a 57 yarder. Um, not fair to Brian Johnson, obviously. He didn't have anything to do with that. Um, but it's just a, just ironic, a ironic thing to look at at this point in the season. Yeah, and spe- I was watching the the spring game and and noticed that Jordan Stout was by far and away he looked so much improved. I know that he's always had the leg, but but the accuracy issues were the big deal. And then with Brian Johnson, it was accuracy, maybe not leg, but you know it is what it is. They they have to. You, I, I still think you know he has potential to be a good kicker. Um, it, it's just you know. Well, he's a good kicker. He just can't. Yeah. You know, just hasn't proven to be able to make it from distance. So exactly whether that means you keep trying them out there from 45 or 50 yards or whether that means, you know, you, you got to start going with going for it. Um, you know, we'll see going forward what, what point they decide. More fourth downs. That's what I'm in favor for. Or more Oscar Bradburn, whatever. Oh yeah. I'll take that too. Any day, honestly. <laughs> um, but, but let's move on to kind of, the overall picture. Now, after this game, a lot of questions were raised. Uh, and looking at the remainder of the schedule after this bye week, it's going to get a lot tougher. So actually, I looked at the Football Power Index, which is a tool by ESPN, which kind of gives probabilities for every game. And I thought it was extremely concerning that Virginia Tech is only favored in two of their next nine games. So it's it should be a pretty stressful remainder of the season. This might be the last time you can kind of catch your breath this bye week and maybe the next one. Um, but let's dive straight into the schedule. All right, Doug. So it might be time to revise our season predictions. Now, I was yelled at because I said eight and four, and I said the losses would come against Miami. Notre Dame, Wake Forest, and Pittsburgh. Uh, what was what were your initial thoughts on the season? Yeah, I had them at nine and three, so I guess I was a little more optimistic than you. Um, I had the two losses in Notre Dame and Miami. I had a loss on the road at Georgia Tech, which um, <laughs> you know, I guess that was you know they lost the Citadel this week, so we'll see what happens there, but. You know, I think at, at this point, he started to reevaluate it. And I think you're looking at Tech trying to get the 7-5 and five or maybe even 8-4, um, which I guess would make you more right than me. I mean, it's college football, you know. You never know, and that's why we love it so much. But I do want to jump into the remaining schedule, and we'll kind of briefly go over each of the next nine opponents for the remainder of the year. Kind of the bye week special. Maybe we'll – We'll revisit this this segment for the next bye week, but let's start off with Duke. And I gotta say, look, they played Alabama 
and they got smoked. But in their next two games, granted, not against the best competition, I mean, they look really, really good. So personally, you know, this is a game that now Duke is favored by in the FPI, the Football Power Index. But but what are your thoughts? Do you think this will be a Duke-favored game? I believe the initial line is actually in Virginia Tech's favor, but what what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, they're getting a lot of credit for playing at home, if that's the case. You know, Duke is – you're always going to hear that they're tough, that they're a well-coached team with David Cutcliffe as their head coach. And, uh, you know, I don't think – I don't think this <laughs> – I don't think this season's any different. They lost – they obviously got stomped by Alabama, but – a lot, most of the country is going to get stomped by Alabama. Um, they always got a decent quarterback. I think I saw today that he's also leading them in rushing this year, so they're probably a little different. Um, when you think about Virginia Tech and the struggles they've had turning the ball over, and then you look at Duke and you assume they're, they're probably not going to turn the ball over. This is going to be a tough one. So the, do you want to reevaluate your, your, win, your wins and losses? What do you, what do you think about this one? I said that, and then I'm still going to take Virginia Tech to win at home on a Friday night after a bye week. All right. I think – now people are going to hate me for saying this. I think Duke steals it on on as the road opponent. Um, I think anytime you factor in a dual-threat quarterback, and again, I don't know if it's because they were playing inferior competition, but I think Quinn Harris is a really – he looked extremely solid last week and really good the week before. I think he just makes the offense more dynamic. And just any time there's a dual threat that has the ability to complete more than 60% of his passes without turnovers and also rush for 100 yards, it makes me a little worrisome. So I, I think there are some injuries on Duke's defense. I think their defensive line is very underrated. But, yeah, I think – I mean, at this point, unless something changes over this bye week and we see more confidence out of the team, I think that, that Duke will steal it. But I think it's going to be, you know, like a four-point game. So I, I would not be surprised if Virginia Tech were to win this one. Uh, I just think specifically Duke, how well they're coached, how they don't turn over the ball as much. And with the dual-threat quarterback, that kind of – leans in their favor. Although it is in Lean Stadium and it's a Friday night game, so you never know. Virginia Tech has a lot of time pr- to prepare for them, not counting them out by any means. I think it'll be close regardless. Uh, right now, at this very moment, on Tuesday night, uh, over a week to go until this game, I currently favor Duke. Uh, but but then there's Miami, at Miami, the big bad coastal favorites that seem to be struggling a little bit. What's your take on them? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're really young up front, just like Virginia Tech. So, you know, it might, (laughs) Tech might have a shot in that regard, but, you know, they've got a really good defense, I think, playing at in Miami. Um, They always seem to to pack the plays for that game. Um, and it's going to be a hostile environment. It's going to be way different than what that Boston College game was like for them. So I think Miami is a clear favorite here. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think, you know, before the season, I kind of circled this game. I was like, potentially college game day, maybe. And how wrong was I? So 
I think Miami's defense is is their story of the season. I think they're championship caliber defense and offense. They have enough pieces to to move the chains and generate some points. So I think Miami will be favored, but I don't think it will necessarily replicate the past performances in Miami, especially that twenty eight to ten game a few years ago. I, I think it'll it'll be somewhat closer. Um, but then after Miami, there's Rhode Island. How do you? <laughs> I mean, honestly, professionally, how do you feel about this? Uh, professionally, um, <laughs> well, hopefully, Hendon Hooker and Quincy Patterson can get into this one. Rhode Island is 0 and 2 on the year right now. They lost 41 to 20 at Ohio to open the year. They lost 44 to 36 to Delaware in overtime um, two weeks ago now. And leading up to this game, they'll play at New Hampshire versus Stony Brook and at Brown. Um, I think I think the Hokies should win this one. Yeah, I think if if this is not the the breakout game where it's like 52 to 10 or 52 to three, something along those lines then there will be riots in Blacksburg. Um, but then, if you look at this this game, if you look at the schedule, Tech is one and one against Duke and Miami. Somehow, you know they're one and two in in the ACC play at that point. This could be, a, you know, that Rhode Island game could be a helpful game to kind of like, I'm assuming they lose to Miami to kind of like wash themselves of Miami and get ready for a big one against UNC next week. Yeah, so essentially there's three bye weeks on the schedule, so it all worked out after all. Uh, but like you said, then there's North Carolina. The MAC is back. I know they had a tough game against Wake Forest last weekend. I thought you know they were severely outplayed for much of the game, and then all of a sudden they started to mount a comeback. Sam Howell, the true freshman, one-time Florida State commit that flipped to them. They seem to have a little bit of momentum. They have they have a pretty solid offense in my opinion. And defensively, I think they're good enough. Um, currently the way I feel about them, I mean, at, at home, I think Virginia tech has the edge over North Carolina. I think they're a little overhyped. Um, but again, I mean, all these games are going to be close, uh, but currently I, I feel as if Virginia tech will take down North Carolina. I agree with you, actually. I think UNC just overhyped from the beginning, picked up um, two early wins against South Carolina. It was probably a bad South Carolina team. Miami, clearly not as good as people were expecting offensively. Howell was great those two games, but then they come out against the well-coached Wake Forest team, the Wayne Egg, until late in the game. Um, they play... App State this week, and then they get Clemson, which will get stopped, and then they get a, a, a road game um, at Georgia Tech before before they play Virginia Tech. Um, they will be coming into lane off the bye, which which could help them. But I mean, they were they were what two and ten last year. I don't think you it would be difficult to see them compete in the ACC legitimately throughout the year. So I think this will be a toss up game. And I, and I like Virginia Tech at home. Yeah, and especially injuries will, will start to play a part, and you can't really count on them or predict them. But I know against Wake Forest, a, a few of their key players started to get 
hurt. So I know that was a huge storyline with them last year. And I mean, their injury report was ridiculous. So um, I know they're, they're starting left tackle, a guy that's being eyed in NFL uh, projections was injured with a right hand injury. We'll see if, if he'll be fully fit. I mean, it's very far down the line. So again, we'll see with that one. Then there's Notre Dame. Actually, let's just skip to wait. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what are your thoughts on Notre <laughs> Dame in South Bend? Virginia Tech's going to lose this game. <laughs> um, Notre Dame's one of the best teams in the country, and playing at home um, <laughs> in South Bend in November, they'll have a lot to play for. Um, you know, I, I just don't see. I guess the only good thing is that they'll be coming off there are two games before they play Virginia Tech are USC and Michigan. Um, and that Michigan one's going to be huge. So, you know, maybe maybe they're still struggling coming off of that or maybe you get a letdown game. But, I, you know, there's no way to – after Virginia Tech trailed 14-3 to for a minute at halftime, you can't expect them to compete with Notre Dame on the road. Yeah, I think it's just a tale of two different teams. One's looking to – to make it back to the college football playoffs and the other team is, is trying to attain a bowl game. So uh, unfortunately this year and uh, two years ago, they went in there with Gerard Evans and, and beat them in spectacular fashion, but it's just, it's a different story. And that Notre Dame team was just awful. So um, yeah, I mean, this, that was your four and eight team. yeah, that was a four and eight team, not one that's looking to go undefeated. So um, but after Notre Dame, there's Wake Forest at home. And yeah, I mean, I've watched quite a bit of Wake Forest. I'm very impressed by how they're coached. It always seems like they don't have the the necessary talent, I guess, to compete for the Atlantic. But somehow they just they play hard. They play well. They're well coached. They have a scheme that works. They normally have a, a wide receiver that they kind of, you know, put the ball in his hands as much as possible, which seems to be either Scotty Washington or Sage Surratt. Both of them are like, what, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, receivers uh, and present matchup nightmares with defensive backs. And the, possibly the biggest question mark with the Virginia Tech defense last year was the defensive backs and you know, they haven't really been tested in that regard. So uh, yeah, they are a little worrisome. Uh, They have good quarterback play as well. Uh, I think they're, they're a pretty complete team uh, and one that I think will give Virginia tech some trouble. This this one's going to be close. Um, You look at Wake Forest schedule, they could be undefeated going into this game. They play Elon this week. That should be a win. They play at at Boston College next week. Boston College just got stomped by Kansas. Oh man! Um, then they play Louisville, who's obviously Louisville this year. Florida State, who's just struggling beyond struggling. Um, and then NC State should be a good game, but they got them at home before all, the, all before they come to Blacksburg. So you're looking at maybe a nine and zero week Forest team coming into Blacksburg. Um, you, you touch on everything. The well coach, I think they'll be favored in this game. You know, I think they'll win this game at this point. Um, 
but it, it's going to be a toss-up game. This is one of those like you know go ACC games where you it was it's going to be a ugly toss-up game. Wake Forest is getting a lot of press now. They're three and zero, and they got a good route to being nine and zero before they or ten and zero before they play Clemson. But they be they open the season thirty-eight to thirty-five against Utah State. So I mean, there's some good happening there with Dave Clawson, but they're still Wake Forest. Um, they're not going to blow blow you out. So you know, Tech has a chance at home, but I'll, I'll give the the Demon Deacons this one. Yeah, and I kind of talked about it with North Carolina. They were so dominant in the first half. I mean, I know it was a home game, but they just seemed to outclass UNC offensively and defensively. They have really good special teams. They had a really good punter um, and a good kicker as well. But but then all of a sudden, UNC surges in the second half. It's like a completely different team. So I think you, you said it, you know, Dave Clawson has some good things going, but at the end of the day, it's Wake Forest. And, you know, sometimes you need – some more talent to kind of get you over that hump. So, but after Wake Forest, a road trip to Georgia Tech. This is one of the two games that the FPI has Virginia Tech favored in for the remainder of the season. I see this one as a struggling Georgia Tech team that lost to the Citadel. Um, look, it happens. The Citadel beat some good teams. They're they're a tough opponent. Everyone hates playing the triple option. Uh, it's kind of funny that it happened to Georgia Tech, but um, at the same time, you know, this is, you know, Jeff Collins looking for an identity, doesn't really have the personnel to run what he wants on offense. Uh, I was, I know they got severely beaten by Clemson in the ACC network opener, but, you know, that defense was resilient. They do have some talent at both safeties and Trace Willing at cornerback. Um, defensive line, not the best linebackers. They're all right. Um, but this one should be fairly comfortable for Virginia tech on the road. Yeah, this is one of the games that I picked tech to or Virginia tech to lose, um, here in the preseason, just based off, um, just the history in Atlanta and, you know, now looking at it, Georgia tech obviously got blown out against Clemson. They came back and beat South Florida. He's got a whole host of issues and might fire Charlie Strong. Um, so they beat South Florida 14-10, and then they come back and beat the Citadel. Um, I think they got a little taste of their own medicine against the Citadel on their triple option attack, um, which is justice for everybody in <laughs> ACC, maybe. Um, but, I, you know, I think they'll be a completely different team by the time we get to the middle of November and whether – whether that's a team that's trying to get get to the off season where they can add more pieces toward, you know, getting away from their triple option roster. Um, or maybe they'll be better. We'll see. Um, but yeah, they just lost the Citadel. Um, so I'm gonna give Virginia Tech the edge in this one right now. Yeah, last thing I'll mention about them. I know they're starting Tobias Oliver right now at quarterback and he's a tremendous athlete. He's been rushing for a ton of yards, obviously part of the old regime with Paul Johnson. I do wonder if eventually, because they have been playing three quarterbacks, Georgia Tech, trying to find an option that will kind of service them in the passing game. I wonder a a name from the past that a lot of Hokies fans won't want to hear is James Graham. I wonder if he eventually takes over that role. He looked pretty good throwing the ball and we all know how good of an athlete he is. Uh, late flip to Georgia Tech, so 
maybe that'll be uh, you know one of the storylines for be, the game. Wouldn't it be nice to have him as a running back oh, option it um, right now? Yeah, and I know he was. It could have either been wide receiver or running back, but I mean that guy's just electric in the open field, and he's also a big body too. So he would have definitely serviced well in the running back room. Um, but after Georgia Tech is Pittsburgh, what do you make of them after a, a close loss against Penn State last weekend? Yeah, I think this is going to be another. This is one of the you know one score type games. Particularly as we get into November, I think I think the Pittsburgh game, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest, UNC, Duke, all these teams that are kind of in the middle of the ACC, you know, they're all gonna you're gonna you're gonna have some tight games, um, particularly when Virginia Tech playing at home. Um, Pat Nardini's team is always it's always a tough team. Um, you know, if, <laughs> I don't know if you saw the Penn State Pittsburgh game um, from last weekend, but you know they had. Pittsburgh has a chance to tie the game with four minutes left from the one-yard line. It's fourth down. They kicked the field goal to cut it to a four-point lead for some reason. Um, and the ball doesn't lie in this situation. So, of course, they missed the field goal, and that cost them the game. So maybe we get a little part, Pat Nardese craziness coming into this one. Um, the, the other thing is this Pittsburgh team beat Virginia Tech into the ground um, last year, 52 to I think it was 52 to 22 ended up being the final score and tech just could not stop Pittsburgh on the ground. So I think that's, that's still a huge concern, but I think it's going to have Virginia's attention and it's, you know, heading into this game. I think I had them at six and four. If my projections are going to be right, which I'm going to assume they're right. Um, so I think tech's playing for bowl eligibility here at home. And I think they'll squeak out a close one and move to seven and four. Yeah, I mean, I've seen two games out of Pittsburgh. I saw them against Virginia, and I saw them against Penn State, and they weren't particularly impressive in either one of those, at least offensively. It seems like Pat Narduzzi has a staple defense always, that they're tough. It feels like a Big Ten team, mid-tier Big Ten team that is placed in the ACC. They have a physical offensive line. They love to pound the rock and just run you over like we saw last year a lot. Uh, granted, uh, those runners are gone now, and they lost a lot of talent all over. And it just seems like you know both Virginia Tech and Pittsburgh are kind of searching for their identities, for new guys to step up, um, to find some consistency on the offensive side of the ball. So it's always a close game. I honestly think it's a coin flip. We'll see which way this goes. Obviously, I think it's, you know, second to last game of the season. I think a lot of things are going to change by then. I think at least one of these teams, we hope, will will find some more consistency on both sides of the ball. Um, I did say in my 8-3, and three, or sorry, 8-4 and four predictions uh, that Virginia Tech would lose this game. But as I've kind of learned of both teams, uh, I think Virginia Tech will come out the better team against Pittsburgh. But now the final game, the penultimate game of Bud Foster's tenure, the last Commonwealth Cup he will ever roam the sidelines for at Virginia. They're ranked 21 right now. Are you starting to second-guess the Virginia game? Yeah. Now that you uh, you bring up that it's going to be Bud Foster's 
last game. Um, it would be a real bummer to, to see the streak end and send him off without a win. But, I mean, if you look at them, them as a team, you know, gets a big win last week against Florida State. They've got a senior quarterback in Bryce Perkins who's, who's very good. Um, he's playing, I mean, it, that run that he had the, for the two-point conversion against Florida State kind of reminded me of Tyrod Taylor running around against Florida State um, in the ACC championship game back in, I think it was 2010 or 2011. Um, but he's obviously the the pulse of that team and is, is really, he's going to be the best player on the field. Um, so, as much as I hate to say it, it I think you got to give EVA at this point of the year the edge. Yeah, I mean, I just counted up all the wins and losses that we just went over, and I have Virginia Tech at 6-5. and five. So not only would it be Bud Foster's last game losing the 15-year streak, it would also mean they don't make the postseason as well. So that would be the trifecta right there. And, I mean, everyone would go into full meltdown. So um, I think Virginia's a, a very solid team. I think their defense is – tremendous I think it's perhaps the best or second best defense in the ACC you know not the best I guess Clemson but um, you know Virginia's right there they're a top 25 defense their offense with Bryce Perkins obviously he seems like the one-man show right now I know Joe Reed is a very good player for them but um, I am a little concerned about his durability throughout the year just because he's being asked to do a lot. He was already wearing a knee brace when they played against Florida State. I don't think Florida State's that good of a team, and, you know, they took them till the very end. So you never know with this Virginia team. I do think with all the Orange Bowl projections, that's a little, that's a little you know, overhyped for Virginia, in my opinion. I get it. They're ranked. They're 3-0. and Everyone else is a mess, so it makes sense that they're the most polished of all, all the mess in the ACC Coastal. But, yeah, I think this one will be a tough game. Certainly both teams play up for it. It seems that Virginia Tech has been lucky at times to to win the games, um, especially when they've had more talent. So I'm not putting it past Virginia Tech to necessarily lose this game just because, you know, talent doesn't seem to matter in these types of games. And with, with Bud Foster's, Last game, I know we're talking about it now, but but the defense already looks improved. I think they'll come out even more fired up. It's at Virginia, but I don't know how much that really matters, to be quite honest. Um, both fan bases can easily get to the game. Um, so I'm still leaning towards a Virginia Tech win, um, but this game is very worrisome. And it's weird because it's weird to hear me say that Virginia tech's going to beat the 21 ranked Virginia, but lose to Duke at home. It's strange to, to say that out loud, but um, I do think that with all the history, with all the storylines and, and just how much this means to players that, you know, the unexpected often happens. So we'll see Uh, with a win, it would put Virginia tech at seven and five. What, what's your final uh, record or revised record, I should say? Yeah, I had them at seven and five too. If they can, if they can follow my direction, 
still get seven and five and extend that bowl streak. Um, which obviously isn't where I had him or where you, where you had him at the beginning of the year. But I think after three games, I think that's a pretty fair, um, fair expectation at this point. And how much of a disappointment would you say that would be if that turns out to be the case, if they finish seven and five? Would you say that, or let me rephrase that, would would the season still be a success if Virginia Tech finishes seven and five and beats UVA and makes the postseason? Or, you know, if it's flipped around and they go seven and five but lose to Virginia, is that all of a sudden grounds for bringing in, bringing in an entirely new staff? I think it's going to depend on really how Tech looks the last, that last month. But, you know, I think Virginia Tech could go out and lose the next three games to Duke for the next three, uh, we'll call them FBS games, to Duke, um, Miami, and North Carolina. And the sandwiched around a win, a win against Rhode Island. Um, that put them at, what, three and four? Going into Notre Dame, you count that as a three and five record heading into the last four games. Okay, now... How do you look in the last four games? Can you, if Texas four no in those last four four games, you're you're still a seven and five team. But if you're if you're four zero and you're looking like you turn the corner, I think that's a much more positive year. That's a much more positive seven and five than, um, like you were saying, or kind of like what we both just predicted when. Like winning a couple here, losing a couple here, winning, losing, kind of that more inconsistent feel. So um, I'm going to withhold judgment on if the UVA game is, ends up being the you know the barometer to measure the program and if it's all going to fall down if Tech loses. Because um, I think there's some wiggle room there in terms of what what the team looks, what the program looks like if you if they if they struggle. You know, up until like week eight, and then you know you start to see this noticeable um, uptick there at the end. Yeah, personally, I think that a seven and five record. While you know, I did, I did see a scenario which that could happen. I think a lot of us were optimistic to think eight and four, nine and three. I know even some people were saying ten and two, which is crazy to think about now that that was only four weeks ago or three weeks ago. Whenever we made those predictions. But, yeah, overall, it, it, you know, you have a schedule that aligns aligns with uh, two bye weeks and a, a schedule that doesn't present a lot of challenge in the out-of-conference games aside from Notre Dame. Uh, and, and then an ACC, which is kind of struggling and jockeying for positioning right now, that you really only have Clemson as an established team and you can count Virginia in that regard as well but everyone else is really you know they have success but they also have their fair share of struggles so for sure it's going to be it's going to be an interesting year of course this could all change maybe they come out firing against Duke after the bye week and and all of a sudden you know the 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 outlook for the rest of the season changes um but yeah, this this might be a good topic to revisit for the next bye week and and kind of see our thoughts after that. But Doug, that's all the time we have for tonight. 
Thanks so much for joining on. Any final words for us? I got nothing. Uh, <laughs> hang in there, and we'll see what happens against Duke. Sounds good. All right, dog. We'll catch you later. All right. Sounds good. What's going on, guys? It's Matei back again with Matei's Takes, just to kind of send you guys off with this bi-week episode. I know it's been a super long episode once again. Hopefully you guys can digest this over multiple days or even all in one sitting if you really want to. Who knows how long your commutes are after all. If you're listening to this in the car, on your computer at work, wherever you may be, at the gym, doing cardio, we really appreciate you listening. We've been seeing an increased number of listeners over the past several weeks, and we're just super grateful for all of you that are tuning in and listening to us ramble on about Virginia Tech football. The last thing I'll leave you guys off on is the bye week. It's time for improvement. It's time now to solidify a lot of the concepts on offense. Obviously, it hasn't been a good start for Virginia Tech. Yes, they're 2-1, and one, but their two wins over Old Dominion and Furman haven't been convincing. And now the close loss defined by turnovers against Boston College doesn't look as good as they just lost to Kansas and were blown out. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's still early in the season. Each team is different. Each team has unique problems. I still firmly believe that this team is able to reach that 8-4 and four threshold, I think. Over this, this next week, a lot of fans should reflect and, and look at their season expectations. I know there were a bunch of people that projected them to go 10-2. and two. And yes, while they do look good on paper, we're seeing a lot of problems both on the offensive side and defensive side. I think for the most part, through three games... I've been surprised by the defense. I think they're really stepping up. I think it's not the same issue as last year. Uh, They looked really good defending the run against A.J. Dillon in that first game and defending Boston College outside of a second-quarter collapse against Old Dominion and Furman. The unit was solid. Yes, they're not playing the best competition, but you can already tell the back end of the defense with Caleb Farley, with Jermaine Waller with Reggie Floyd and Divine Diablo, they seem pretty set there. Uh, Not as many concerns as last season. We'll see in ACC play if they can keep that up. The linebacking core with Richard Ashby and Dax Hollifield looks solid as well. Chamari Connor stepping in at whip looks really, really promising and could find himself in an all-ACC role if he's able to carry out the success throughout the season. The defensive line will continue to be the big question mark for the defense, rotating a lot of guys. I think it's unfair to judge this defensive line without Taiwan Garbutt. I think he's the best overall pass rusher of the group. I think he should be back in the fold soon, maybe as soon as Duke. We'll see, but he is a tremendous talent. He's a guy that can really generate pressure, and I think if you put him there – and kind of shuffle the other guys around and put them where they're supposed to be, that this unit is solid overall. Deshaun Crawford, the JUCO defensive tackle, looks really solid inside. I think they're still working with the freshmen to kind of get them consistent, work on technique. But overall, I I have been pleased with the defensive side of the ball. Offensively, Doug and I, we went into it very in-depth about the offensive line and quarterback play. It hasn't lived up to the billing, quite honestly. I know that a lot of people are quick to target out Brad Cornelson, and maybe the scheme is just too difficult in general to grasp. 
But certainly when you have a redshirt senior, I think a lot of it falls on him as well, making the right reads, the right decisions, and also making sure that he's not turning over the ball. I think that's defined the first three games, and you cannot expect this team to carry out the offense the way they are. I don't think you can expect to have the offense commit the most turnovers in all of college football. That's the defining statistic for this offense through three games. That's not going to happen against everyone. It's It's been an underperformance, to say the least, about the offense. But it, there's a lot of young guys, a lot of young talent, and I believe that there's a lot of potential with the players on offense. We haven't even seen Damon Hazleton yet, a guy that was the second team all ACC caliber guy. Once he steps in, it slides over Trey Turner. Tavion Robinson has shown a lot of promise in the slot, quite honestly. And then you also have Ezekiah Grimsley. So I think adding a guy like Damon Hazleton, whenever he does come back from his hamstring injury, already elevates the profile of the offense. Keyshawn King has shown in flashes that he can be the guy. Now he may not be carrying the rock 20 times a game, but he's a guy that is able to break down ACC defenses. He's a guy that's going to be a a figure at the position for a long time. I think if they can find other consistent options, if Jalen Holston comes back, all of a sudden the run game looks better. If the injuries on the offensive line sort themselves out, if they solidify a rotation there, there's no reason to think that this team can't improve. And I think that's my main point here that Yes, we do have a pessimistic outlook of the rest of the season. Seven and five isn't what many fans signed up for. They don't want to watch that, especially knowing that the schedule is easy and that the opponents aren't of the caliber that they used to be. It's it's a mess, quite honestly, right now in the ACC. But a lot of teams are sorting themselves out. And I think Virginia Tech, at the end of the day, will be fine offensively and defensively. Quite honestly, if the defense holds it up, Virginia Tech will win a lot of games and a lot of games that they will be counted out. Um, When I mentioned the football power index favoring two of the next nine games, which is a little ridiculous to think about, it's mainly on the fact that they only beat an FCS team by seven. And it depends how much you want to look into that. If this were a result that happened in week nine, I think it would be much more concerning especially given that they have a bye week right now, it's a little less concerning. Yes, there's reason for people to not want to support the team or get fully behind the team. I understand those people, but for the people that do still stand behind the team and are invested in every single game, I think 8-4 and four is very possible. I don't think it's of the caliber to contend for the ACC Coastal yet. It's just such a young team, and there's so many variables that go into it all. But anyways, that's the podcast for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.